Welcome to Intrepid Media, the show for the business professional. Here, we're going to talk about business topics such as leadership, sales, marketing, HR, innovation, strategy, and technology. But we're also going to riff about lifestyle too and help you look better, feel better, and live better. This show is everything the modern business professional needs, from the C-level executive to the millennial. So let's get on with the show. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I am your host, Todd Schnick. This is going to be a wicked cool conversation, if you'll forgive the pun. Uh, that will make more sense in just a few minutes. Gosh, uh, business is changing, and, and the, the business world, and frankly the world in general, is just more and more complex and only going to get more complicated. So I think today's conversation is going to be very very eye-opening for all of us in business, particularly in a level of business that, that's far more complex than perhaps it used to be. So this should be a very, very useful conversation. I'm joined this morning by Dr. John Camillus. He is the author of a new book called Wicked Strategies, How Companies Conquer Complexity and Confound Competitors. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. Happy to be with you. Well, I'm happy to have you. I appreciate you carving out some time to join us. I know you're awfully busy, so I appreciate uh, you making some time. John, before we get into our conversation about this important book, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and the work that you're currently doing. Oh, I should start by saying I'm a recovering engineer. So my undergraduate degree was in engineering, and then I picked up an MBA and a doctorate in business along the way. And I've been at the University of Pittsburgh for a very long time and have been in the strategy area at the University of Pittsburgh's Katz Graduate School of Business. Uh, gone through the usual progression. I have a chair now, have the Donald Beale Chair in Strategic Management. I'm rather long in the tooth. I've had it since 91. Huh. Fortunately, it's a permanent chair. The kinds of work that I've been doing has been focusing more on the process side of strategy, planning and control systems in particular. And in the last few years, I've been working on, in two arenas. I'm going to mention one and then set it aside uh, and then talk about the arena which led to the book which we are uh, discussing today. The first uh, topic I'd like to mention is a project called The Business of Humanity, which I can argue is a special case of wicked strategies, which I'll come to in a moment. And essentially the proposition underlying the business of humanity is that by integrating social concerns in your business model, you can actually make more money. And that is something that people are becoming more aware of. And it's a project that's been very generously funded by seven or eight entities, including the university, government departments, and multiplicity of foundations. And we are actually engaged in a demonstration phase now, having done research, done some empirical work demonstrating the the, the Proposite, that the proposition actually is valid in certain contexts around the world. We have developed a course that we have offered in three countries and to multiple groups. And right now we are in a project that is actually implementing the business of humanity strategies that we have developed. The second area that I've been working on in the last several years is the notion of wicked problems. And this is really, really important because many of us don't realize the existence of uh, wicked problems. Most of us look at uh, problem solving in a traditional linear fashion that we have developed and has been very powerful and effective where we define the problem, we generate alternative 
alternative responses to the problem, solutions to the problem. We use a, an accepted criterion to uh, identify which is the best solution, and then we implement it. Now, a wicked problem has certain characteristics which make all the traditional approach uh, dysfunctional, probably, and certainly useless. And uh, the characteristics are the following. One is you have multiple stakeholders with conflicting priorities. If you take, if this has been evident in the public policy arena. If you look at immigration, if you look at education, you look at violence against women, all of these, in a sense, uh, have multiple stakeholders with very different priorities, conflicting priorities, strongly held views. The second thing is the problem is something that you really haven't encountered before, though you may not have realized it. So it's substantially without precedent. The third characteristic of wicked problems is that you do not know when you have the right answer. There is no stopping rule. There's no way you can say continuing on this will get you a more, a more refined and closer to an optimal solution. The fourth notion here is that wicked problems are multiple causes and they are inextricably entangled. So you can't really deal with it by partitioning the problem. And the final notion, which is really important, is that uh, there's a complexity here that is difficult to grasp. Depending upon the solution that you are considering, the nature of the problem changes. So the definition of the problem changes depending upon the solution. When you have those kinds of characteristics, the traditional approaches to problem solving just don't work. And wicked strategies, and I'm glad you mentioned this at the outset, wicked strategies or wicked cool strategies are what I'm proposing to handle the issue of wicked evil problems. And I'm, I'm really glad you picked upon the two ways I'm using the word wicked, trying to attract attention, and at least it has caught your attention. So I'm grateful that it worked. Oh, it worked greatly. I, it, and thank you for walking through the main characteristics of a quote, wicked problem. It, you led off by talking about how this is applicable to government or, or policy problems. Uh, and, yes. and, and the examples that you shared, gosh, certainly to me, we can all agree are very clear cut wicked problems as you, as you yes. define that. Help the audience who's listening understand how this a wicked problem is applicable to a business scenario because I, I think they, uh, we, we I think we tend to lump quote problems into one bucket and we then that's when we try to apply traditional strategies with which to solve them and I think they're dealing with different classifications of problems and don't even know it so so walk us through how you would you would apply those characteristics of a wicked problem to a, maybe a more common scenario in business yes uh, could I take a being a professor you'll bear with me if I take a step back and give you the reasons why wicked problems are emerging in certain contexts I would ex I would expect nothing less from Professor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Over the years, I've essentially honed down the variety of forces that businesses encounter in the environment to three very, very prominent and commonly experienced mega forces, as I call them. One is the inevitability of globalization. Whatever we say, even, even if I'm located in southwestern Pennsylvania and just want to focus there, I've got to be aware of global competition, global sourcing, global financing, global standards, global quality, the possibility of global partnerships, the pull of global markets. I cannot uh, ignore the power uh, and the intensity of globalization. Again, if I want to survive in the long term, if I want to be sustainable, I have to engage in innovation. 
cases is death for businesses. It's, it's pretty evident if you look at Blockbuster and companies like that. Uh, the third notion, which is not that evident, but uh, Michael Porter and so on have picked up on it, is the imperative of responding to a variety of very powerful stakeholders and sharing value with them. The NGOs are becoming important. The community is becoming important. Layers of government are becoming important. Political parties that are out of power are important. This is an addition to the big three of shareholders, customers, and employees. And if, if you look at what happens when these forces interact, you start getting wicked problems because if you put globalization and innovation together at their intersection, you get destructive technologies. When you try to address the $13 trillion of purchasing capacity at the base of the pyramid globally, you have to innovate in terms of technologies, frugal engineering, and so on. So disruptive technologies emerge, and businesses are just not prepared to deal with disruptive technologies. We teach our MBAs to invest in sustaining technologies that improve their existing business models. You put innovation and shared value or multiple stakeholders together, you get conflict stakeholders and we are sort of overwhelmed by that and the third point which is really fundamental is look at the complexity and the uncertainty created by globalization to give you just one minor thing look at the Middle East there's no way you can tell me what's going to happen tomorrow let alone tell me what's going to happen a year from now you combine that with very powerful stakeholders with totally conflicting priorities and you have an unknowable future uh, globally if you combine this unknowable future, disruptive technologies, and conflicted stakeholders, you have a breeding ground for wicked problems. Let me take one uh, example. Take a look at disruptive technologies. This can wipe out businesses. The Internet has wiped out the brick-and-mortar bookstores, basically. The music industry has been totally disrupted by, uh, by the Internet, for example. So if you look at businesses, you can say, hey, I'm being totally challenged, or you can say, and this is what Wicked Strategy is about, how can I take these incredibly complex challenges, difficult challenges, and turn them to my advantage, like in some of the martial arts, we teach people how to use the opponent's momentum and strength against them. So, for example, if you're looking at GE, an industrial company, and Jack Welch realizes, and Jeffrey Immelt is actually doing something very powerful about that, the disruptive technologies created by the Internet, by the Internet of Things, by additive manufacturing, essentially... If you look at Jeffrey Emil's strategy these days, he is embracing these two developments to create new business models for GE and new ways of competing. There are organizations like Ford in Brazil, which actually embraced its various stakeholders in very powerful ways and created new value and engaged these stakeholders in developing what was an iconic assembly plant in a totally underdeveloped part of Brazil in, in Bahia state in Kamasari, which became an iconic assembly plant showing businesses around the world how to make automobiles more, effect, more effectively and efficiently. In terms of unknowable futures, you can see organizations essentially trying to create a future that they want to see as opposed to, in a sense, accepting what is going on. You can see Netflix trying to do that. You can see Amazon trying to do that. So essentially, if you look at almost any organization that is large, 
that is technology-driven, that is operating globally, they will be encountering wicked problems. Look at the health industry. What kind of future can you plan when you don't know what's going to happen with Obamacare? You don't know what the Supreme Court is going to do. You don't know which political party will uh, be in power. You don't know whether you have to address illnesses or address wellness. You have to wonder who's going to pay for this. When you look at these kinds of problems, you can say there are so many industries facing wicked problems. But then when you embrace the challenge and use the kinds of wicked strategies I'm proposing, you can actually turn them to your advice. Can I give you one more example before I yeah, shift please, from this topic? Please do. Uh, there, uh, there's a company called Arvind, A-R-V-I-N-D, in India. Started out as a textile manufacturer, but has dropped the te- uh, Arvind Textiles from its name because it's become multi-business. They ran into a problem in terms of supply of cotton. Many of their suppliers in the immediate vicinity were marginal cotton farmers dependent upon rain for irrigation and the monsoons they depended on are quite unpredictable and very often they ended up losing their little farms to money lenders because they had borrowed money for pesticides, fertilizers, GMO seeds and so on. And essentially their supply chain was at risk. So what uh, Arvind did was actually to engage with the cotton farmers. They hired the top agronomists in the country, 130 of them, taught the cotton farmers to engage in organic farming, supported them through the period in which you get certified as organic, the three-year period, and essentially ended up with improving the livelihood of farmers, growing organic cotton, becoming a prime supplier to companies that uh, emphasize sustainability like Patagonia and Walmart, and became one of the primary producers of organic cotton denim in the world, became extraordinarily profitable, moved into pulses and foods, lentils and so on, I can explain why, and developed a new agribusiness division. So it's a multi-business corporation now. And there are more examples of this nature that I can give you. Essentially, accepting the challenge, approaching it in an innovative way, disrupting the existing business models, and essentially profiting and becoming more competitive than you've ever been. So uh, there are wicked strategies that can convert disruptions into innovative business models, conflicted stakeholders into new ways of co-creating value, and unknowable futures into a desired future by using feed-forward processes that I talk about in the book. Mm, Okay, gosh. John, there are about 300 directions I want to take this conversation. We're just so limited by time, it's very frustrating. But just to tie it all up before the break is is deploying a wicked strategy to what is seemingly an insurmountable problem. Is The whole goal there is to turn that into an opportunity, right? I mean, that's, that's what yeah. this is all about. And, and here's yeah. the thing. This is never going to end, right? We're in a state of business and in, in, in the world and in, in, where this kind of dr- dramatic change and disruptive technologies and it's, this is not going to like settle out and, and the waters yeah. are going to get calm again. I mean, this is, you have to, you don't, and you don't do this once. You don't, uh, you don't approach a problem, apply a wicked strategy, fix it, and you're smooth sailing. I mean, this is, a, this is going to be a constant evolution, right? You mentioned Amazon. They're yes. always changing. They're always yes. evolving because they're doing this, right? Yes, exactly. Ex- uh, that's a brilliant observation. I mean, uh, the wicked problems don't entirely go away. You're constantly dealing with them because the way to understand a wicked problem is to attack them. You can't diagnose it sitting in your chair and uh, looking at your navel and thinking deep thoughts. You have to attack them. And you will progress 
towards some kind of way of taming them. Before the break, I don't, let me make uh, one point which is very important. Then I'd like to talk about in some detail about the total management process and system and design that you need to put into place to address what you have pointed out is going to be an increasingly prevalent and increasingly intense problem. There is a mindset in the U.S. that actually hobbles us uh, toward it. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. If I have an expensive vase sitting on my desk and I knock it down and break it, the observers and my colleagues, the, the way they are going to phrase it in the U.S. immediately is John broke the vase. And the next step is John should be held responsible. You look at any problem in the U.S., our first instinct, whether it's uh, talking heads on TV, whether it's politicians, whether it's corporate heads, is to say who's responsible and how do we punish them for their mistake. What I discovered in Japan is they look at it differently. They'll say, and it's in the language, they say the vase broke itself. And then the second question is, how do we prevent it from breaking itself? Could be that John is a klutz and he should be moved away from his seat or whatever. But the other thing could be, do we need a vase there? Do we need something other than a vase? Can we reposition it? So the whole set of options are considered. So when you're attacking a wicked problem, the notion of failures is something that you have to abandon. It's an experiment. So you have to be willing to learn from what is going on, learn that the context and what you're trying to address is different than you anticipated and respond to that. That's a mindset that is difficult to implement in most U.S. corporations. Some people do it well, but the Japanese have absorbed that kind of approach. And that's one mindset change that we need to adopt before we actually transform the management system in ways that I'd like to talk about. Mm. Okay. Dr. John Camillus and I will return after this short break. We'll be right back. In today's workplace, business leaders face significant pressure to recruit and retain the best employees, to effectively build a team, to create a culture that is healthy, productive, and dynamic, and to empower their staff in managing stress and finding balance. And behind all those pressures is one goal, to strengthen and grow the business. And too many organizations struggle with this. Unlimited Coaching Solutions provides customized strategies and training to help reach your goals and take your teams to the next level. Call them today at 585-248-9322 or find them online at unlimitedcoaching.com. All right, I am back with Dr. John Camillus, the author of a new book, Wicked Strategies. All right, so John, right before the break, you wanted to dive into management responsibilities to this issue. Yes, and Todd, as you very astutely pointed out, this is not, wicked problems are not going to go away, and this will be a continuing and increasingly significant challenge faced by businesses. So the traditional way of setting up your management system to handle problems just doesn't work. Let me give you three examples. One is, if you look at how we conceive of strategy, in the simplest sense, we talk about a product-market-technology combination that works. But products are ephemeral, uh, Markets are transient, technology is dynamic. That doesn't give you any kind of a basis for decision-making in the long run. The concept of a mission, what business you're in, is also, I think, obsolete. If you look at what all of us have in our pockets, there's a gadget that most of us tend to call a cell phone or a smartphone. But if you actually think about it, it's a GPS system, it's a voice recorder, it's a music system. Uh, Depending upon the app, it could be a variety of other things. Uh, So essentially, if you think of it as a cell phone and you analyze the cell phone industry to understand the future of this gadget that you have, which ultimately could be an 
mobile internet access device, uh, you really can't apply these traditional techniques because you don't know what the industry is, the FIFOs' analysis and so on. I can go on, but basically the concept of what strategy is has to change. And in my book, I recommend the notion of identity as providing the, the anchor, the beacon, and the compass for strategy. And identity consists of values, your core values, your enduring aspirations, and your distinctive competencies. And what's core about you, what is enduring about you, and what's distinctive about you is what people call your identity. And I show how to essentially take these fundamental core enduring distinctive notions and use them as the lens through which to arrive at responses to wicked problems. The second element is the way you organize yourself, how you structure the organization. Let me set up a a straw man and attack it first. The traditional hierarchical structure is totally useless in the context of a wicked problem. It is set to handle the past. It is very efficient. It is siloed, but that doesn't respond to the nature of wicked problems. And essentially what we need to do is to adopt a variety of approaches I've seen across the world. One is create what some people call an ambidextrous organization. I'm calling it a modular structure, but because there are modules, I have certain clusters of modules that handle existing businesses. I have clusters of modules that are new ventures, and I have a new recommendation for the corporate headquarters, which is at the core. But essentially, what you have is your SBUs or your modules to handle existing business still compete as seriously as they ever did. The new models, the new ventures, which are adopting the disruptive technologies, engaging conflicted stakeholders and so on, are actually engaged in the business of making your SBUs obsolete. But they're doing it independently, like the Skunk Works and Lockheed and uh, IBM's approach of approaching it, uh, developing its PC, not in uh, New York, but in Florida. And my headquarters is totally different. It is a competency development unit which develops the competencies required for the new businesses, and as they are uh, developed, also applies them to the existing business. So it's a very HR in a positive, dynamic sense, getting people who are aligned with the values of the company and nurturing the new competencies, developing them, the accounting and finance and so on become secondary objectives of top management. If you go back and look at what the successful CEOs have said uh, 80% of the job is they'll say it's personnel, whether it's Jack Welch or his predecessor, Reginald Jones, or his successor, Jeffrey Emel, they'll tell you personnel and human resources and competency development is key. And the third notion, it, this is my area, planning and control systems, are traditional systems analyze the past, try to predict the future, and then say this is what we'll do. In the context of an unknowable future that is not possible, so I use processes that one of my doctoral students, Rajaram Velayat, developed some years ago. He called them feed forward, where you define a desirable future, try to identify the enablers, and work towards creating that desired future in the chaos that you're otherwise facing. When there's such great uncertainty and complexity, prediction is impossible. So you are forced to, in a sense, adopt the cliche, perhaps, that in this context where you can't predict the future, you have to create it. And I have a whole series of processes which enable you to create the future that you desire. So essentially, change the notion of strategy, change the notion of structure, change the notion of planning and control processes, and you have an organization that is designed to deal with wicked problems as they emerge and continually deal with them. Mm. 
gosh, a lot to think about here. When you were walking through the characteristics of a wicked problem at the top of the show, you talked about the idea that you might not know when you have the right answer. And then you were talking about the the typical mindset of the American business person who is looking to avoid responsibility and, and or trying to find blame. If you say, "Hey, you might not know when you have the right answer," most most of us are going to be paralyzed, and we're not going to yes. we're going to be afraid to do anything. So, how do you how do you overcome that? You put your finger on it, and uh, this is, as I said, one of the major challenges we have to face. When I talk to my executive MBA students who are at senior levels about these ideas, they say, "But my boss is not going to be comfortable with this. How do I adopt it?" And that is a, a real issue. But I think what is happening is, if you look at companies like uh, Google and so on, and you look at their boards, they're actually embracing diversity. They are bringing in younger people. They're bringing in Renaissance thinkers and so on. If you look at that, that's what they're doing. And one of my other doctoral students actually discovered a pattern when he was looking at how companies handle distant returns, when the returns are five or 10 years in the future and they're highly uncertain. And one of the companies he studied for a couple of years in detail was DuPont, DuPont Pharmaceuticals. And in the middle of the study, he came back to me and he said, John, you know, I found $4 billion drugs, but these were all accidents. They didn't really plan on developing them. And uh, I said, you really can't say accidents are the way, looking for serendipity is the way to manage an organization. Go back and look at it. And a year later, he came back and said, you know, this may not make you happy, but this is what I found. In all four instances, the person who spotted uh, something which they were not expecting and created that billion-dollar drug was somebody who had two characteristics. One was somebody who had not grown up in DuPont. They had joined DuPont at a senior level after having worked elsewhere. And the second thing is that these are all Renaissance types. They are widely read. They were not, uh, in a sense, discipline-focused, but essentially read outside the field, were familiar with a variety of things, and were, to summarize it, Renaissance people. And that's the kind of people you really need in terms of leading organizations. So as long as you have dinosaurs like me leading organizations, you're not going to be able to implement what uh, you and I are talking about, Todd, and you put your finger on it. So it is. Uh, if you look at Jeffrey Immel, he, he's taking risks that uh, are pretty difficult for an ordinary person to take. And he, he, as he says, he has no plan B. He's just investing in what he thinks are the directions GE needs to go to handle the two major disruptions of the Internet of Things and additive manufacturing. And I have clients who are entering these areas, and when they do some analysis of competition, they say, you know who's the best at these things? It's GE. They're Mm -hmm. covering the entire value chain. They're experimenting. They're acquiring startups. Uh, They are really, in a sense, taking the risks necessary to, uh, in a sense, address the disruptive technologies in a powerful fashion. But it's a mindset that has got to come from the leadership. And you put your finger on what I think is the major uh, obstacle in terms of implementing wicked strategies, Doug. Oh, yeah. You know, it always comes down to mindset, it seems. It's yes. A, so, yes. John, we're running low on time. And unfortunately, I saved what I think is one of the most important questions <laughs> to, to the end. And, and we, could, we could talk for hours on this issue. But let me close with it because I think it's a problem that most people listening, eh, I think that everyone listening, deals with this in some way, shape, or form, and certainly to our policymakers. But this, but this idea of bringing your conflicted stakeholders together to co-create value. Yes. 
that boy, if we could just apply that lesson to our government, it would change everything at every level of government. But but how do you? This is not a fair question to ask you with just a, with just a few minutes to go. But walk us through a couple of the key initial steps and how to actually bring conflicted stakeholders together. The first thing I do, uh, I, I I like two by two matrices. It, it, it they appeal to my limited intellectual capabilities. And uh, I, I use a little two-by-two two first when I'm approaching problems of this nature. And the two dimensions of the two-by-two two matrix are what is the power of the stakeholders? Is it significant or not that significant? And the second uh, dimension is, are they adversarial or supportive? And I try to partition the inventory of stakeholders into that two-by-two matrix. Then I go about it step-by-step and look at each of them. In particular, I look at the powerful adversarial ones and say, what is it that will, in a sense, change their stance towards me or make them less powerful. So before I approach the stakeholders, I have a pretty good idea of what their priorities might be. I look at people who are supportive and uh, not very significant and say, how can I engage them and make them more significant in my new business model? And then what I try to do is engage them in what people might call a charrette or a design meeting or whatever. I've done this with uh, consultants where we bring in groups of people and they're willing to come and talk, where we say these are the preliminary ideas we have about how to respond to the changing situation. These are some of the innovations we might be implementing. What is your reaction to them? Are there alternative ways one can handle this and so on? And in a sense, engage in a conversation. To me, ultimately, strategy development is a conversational process. So understanding their priorities, talking to them in advance, saying we have an understanding of what might be happening and what your concerns are, come and talk to us about it, and sitting down and having that conversation with multiple stakeholders. I've done this where I brought in the media, I've brought in politicians, I've brought in people from other organizations who may be willing to talk, occasionally competitors too, and essentially sat and bright people from other organizations, uh, government officials, and essentially had conversations about the directions we should go. I mean, if you take a look at Walmart and its uh, travails in India, if they had sat down and talked with the government, I think, more effectively, they still would have, they, I think they would be in a much better position than they are now, where they're pulling out of certain retail opportunities that the government offered them. They could have actually partnered with government to, in a sense, improve their supply chain in India and apply it globally, as opposed to saying the government's demands in terms of incorporating local suppliers were, were excessive and walking away from it. They could have looked at the sustainability demands of the government and said they we are really sustainability leaders in several dimensions. Let's talk to them about it and show them how we can bring these aspects into this retailing industry and share it across the retailing community in India. If they had sat down with the government, I think they'd still be there in a very powerful position. So understanding what the priorities of the stakeholders are, understanding the power, talking to them from their perspective as opposed to your perspective, I've found that to be extraordinarily productive in my consulting. Oh, it's changed. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Just, I mean, I, I've never thought of dealing with conflicted stakeholders by initiating that process with a two-by-two matrices. I mean, that, 
<laughs> that's an amazing way to think about it, and, and that's going to require a lot of thinking on my part after we wrap this interview because that's a that's a that's very very exciting. Well, well, John, gosh, we barely have scratched the surface on the depth that we could go into some of these conversations. It's critically shameful that we only have a half an hour to have had this conversation. Might have to have you back to to dive deeper on some of these subjects, uh, but unfortunately, we're out of time for today. So a couple of uh, uh, to-do items here. One, how can people contact you should they have questions? Where can they learn about your work at the University of Pittsburgh? And most importantly, where can they get a copy of Wicked Strategies? Okay. If you actually go to wickedstrategies.com, one word, it will flip you to my website, which will give you details about the Wicked Strategies approach. And it will also connect you to my Business of Humanity website, which I see as a special case of Wicked Strategies, how to incorporate social concerns into your business model. So if you click on wickedstrategies.com, you will be connected to my website. And from there, you can go to a variety of other places. And obviously, I'm at the University of Pittsburgh and plan to be there in the, for, for the indefinite in the future. So I would love to interact and there's a blog capability on the website industcommons.com to which you'll be flipped. So I'd look forward to reactions, comments, and this is the highest priority for me. I'll get back to anybody who wants more information. Dr. John Camillus, the author of a new book, Wicked Strategies, How Companies Conquer Complexity and Confound Competitors. John, a real pleasure to have you. Thanks again for stopping by. Thank you so much for your kindness. I appreciate being on Uh, Thank you. Pleasure was mine. All right. All the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Dr. John Camillus, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Radio. Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to IntrepidMailingList.com. That's IntrepidMailingList.com and sign up. You can also find us at intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.